Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 60, the big 6-0 of the Simple Life podcast. I've um, got a very interesting guest today. I mean, you might have to squeeze yourselves in because there's not going to be mushroom in here. Terrible, terrible joke that will make sense, I suppose, in a minute. Don't kill me for it. I am a fun guy. They are literally my two mushroom jokes that I have in the world, and I think everybody has. So now we've gotten that out of the way, we will quietly segue on to introducing today's guest, who is a biologist, forager, and medicinal mushroom researcher who is interested in organic farming, sustainability, and mycology. They are Alexandra Lee. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Simba. Are you good? I'm, I'm very good. I feel very, I can feel my own cringe reflex from telling those two jokes. I feel a bit oh. like, oh, oh, I mean, I, I used to oh, work. Oh, you have to slot them in somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I used to work in a uh, produce back in the day for a, a supermarket that I shan't name for legal reasons. And there used to be this old man, bless him. And every time I swear he'd circle around and wait for me to have mushrooms to put out. And he'd, he'd come up behind me and bless him. So excited. And he'd go get right next to us and go, I'm sorry, there's not mushroom in here. And bless him, his, his excitement was so infectious that he'd end up doing it like several times a year. And every time I see him, I'd just be like, yeah, yeah, go on. You deserve it. You deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, make and squeeze us in for this, uh, for this conversation. It's so close to being uh, Christmas in the festive period. I know obviously a lot of people are winding down at the minute and uh, preparing for for winter and all of the uh, all the fun that we're probably going to face with all the uh, Omicron variants and everything else going on in the world. Mm. Mm. Oh, good old Omicron. I'm glad that, that the... <laughs> so I was just going to say, I'm glad we've stuck with the Greek alphabet for it rather than the English one, because we'll be through it faster. <laughs> I, I hope that our restrictions aren't going to be too stringent, as does everyone else, I think. It's... Um, it has become tiresome now, hasn't it? It's mm. we are all ready for a good break, um, and uh, and also looking for transparency as well throughout it because there's lots of uh, contradictory information, specifically within scientists within scientific groups, aren't there? So there's one one side that's saying this is devil spawn, and there's one side saying it's completely safe. Although we have, we are seeing data to suggest that's not true. So yeah, transparency is really important for all of us to get some sense of stability and normality. Um, but yeah, what do, what's your what's your take on it? Do we broach mm -hmm. this subject? Uh, I suppose I just want to kind of get it out of the way because I'm not sure if I'm taking <laughs> next week off yet. So these fine folks may have to listen to this for two weeks running. So I wanted to kind of address, I guess, some of the things that are kind of going on um, in their lives. And yeah, it is, it's, we're, we're now, because I think we've passed the novelty of it and we've grandfathered into this paradigm, as it were, um, that, yeah, a lot of people are just, kind of become apathetic and lethargic and there are these factions within the knowledge bases that have potential vested interests or at least the potential to be vestedly interested in the certain sides of this um and i think that yeah it's kind of left us where we are with i guess the understanding of mushrooms or even sort of psychedelic mushrooms or illegal illicit drugs that we have a certain base of knowledge around this but there is then also a, a socially accepted narrative that needs to be taken into consideration. Um, and I think, yeah, we're at a difficult point where it's hard to discern truth at any given point in our lives. Mm -hmm. And you're not alone 
in feeling like that. I think 99.9% of the population feel like that, even if they've probably adopted the vaccine, they're still, they still want some certainty. I'm sure that there's some of that, well, maybe that, that's quite a high statistic, isn't it? I mean, maybe if we go with 60-40, I think that's a fairer, fairer uh, deduction of the statistics there. But I, I'm definitely in the 40% camp, not sure about it um myself and yeah i want i want more transparency um and i want less muting of those who are trying to bring about some transparency as well it seems that a lot well it's, it's not just seems there is a lot of censorship that mm. is going on and our free will and our free speech is is being um directed for us and we're being told to what we should say and what we shouldn't say um which never leaves you in a nice position that's almost like a controlling relationship that's not one that you would ever want to be in someone telling you what to do or having to do and you should do i don't like any of those words um yeah no i i agree and it's it's quite an interesting time because i think it I can kind of see how we got to where we are with, say, for example, the war on drugs when you're 50, 60 years removed from it. Because each year there are fewer and fewer people that have the longevity to kind of speak that narrative and to shout into the abyss knowing that there are no no ears there to hear them. There are no people there to 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 take on board that knowledge and to continue a discourse around it. And I think we're only two years into this sort of narrative now when we've already as you said, accepted quite a lot of new norms and a lot of new paradigms that a few years ago would have been deemed simply not even just impossible, but beyond controversy, even the idea of discussing it. Yet we're now living in a world where everything is constantly changing. So from January, double vaxxed doesn't mean vaxxed, it triple vaxxed does then mean vaxxed. And they've changed that goalpost. They keep changing the margins. Even during the statistics, they said if you died within 28 days, that was a COVID death. If you tested positive and died initially from the start of it, that was a COVID death. There were so many different alternate measurements and yardsticks that they were using to determine the seriousness of this, that then the lack of continuity and consistency, I think, has left most people just disinterested. They are dealing with what is in front of them right now. Can I feed my kids? Can I afford to be furloughed again, you know, what would happen if the economy shut down again? There are so many other options, uh, sorry, things to consider that most people don't have the option to think about this. They just have to pay their bills. They've still got a mortgage and energy bills, regardless of what plan we're on or what tea we're in or what system is, is being prescribed, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I think we can take one positive from covid though and it's that we we don't we don't have to be stuck to an office anymore and that we have the option to work from wherever we like and for a lot of people who were furloughed or or then um, made redundant they were looking for jobs that would work from home 99 percent of those people were going i don't want to go back into an office no i'd never ever go and work in a warehouse again in fact i can be whatever i like from wherever I like. Um, so I have enjoyed that part of it in that the mindset of the general population is driven towards how comfortable they are. And I think that's that's mainly out of the situation that they've been drawn into. Mm -hmm. um, but they are 
they're deciding what's right for them now and what is better going to make their life um, more comfortable and also comfortable for their family and the people around them, their friendships, and they're discussing that. And it's a, it's a very creative environment because it's very new. Um, so long may that, that continue, that drive for creativity in, in such desperate times. Um, and I think that community is building again. It's just building in a very different way. Um, and authenticity is, is very much important for a lot of people too now. Agreed, agreed. I think the, the first lockdown, the first sort of wave of, of uh, knowledge and awareness that, that swept across the world caused such a slowdown and a pause for most people that they had an option to really meditate on their lives and consider the path and trajectory that they're on and take those steps. I, I agree. I thought that the decentralization of... Uh, um, of work was was a really positive thing. It showed, well, for the first instance, and then when kind of a lot of the industries went, actually, how much are we saving by not then having this uh, centralised building, by not paying for it in the centre of London, paying for the car parking, the taxes? And then they went, okay, well, how do we know the productive at home? And then they start to switch on cameras and say that actually we now need to record keystrokes and things like this. And it, it became that we're being given almost a tiny inch and then they're, they're taking a mile with it and i suppose this is a, a good way to segue on to what i want to use as a transition into sort of mushrooms um and mycelium is then how they've kind of what they're doing with cannabis at the minute so they're sort of giving an inch with one hand but then they're creating this 10-year drug plan they're creating these systems of of oppression by passing the new police crime uh, police crime court sentencing bill and the new immigration bill these are incredibly draconian pieces of legislation that for all we are bonding together and being creative now and unifying and finding community when the inevitable comes i feel that we go well, okay we need to do something about this our right to protest our right to gather our right to dissent to stand against the status quo may not be there anymore and i just kind of worry what or, yeah worries to what we can do to create those communities to create as a way a mycelial network of subculture connectivity between the different hubs of, of activists, of truth seekers, of people with knowledge and experience and an awareness that not everything needs to make money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, as we know, the activist community are a very creative bunch too. So if there is any sector of uh, the population that can find a way to come to a solution, I bank on that one, being able to do it, because there's no settling for half measures. And if something doesn't feel right, normally it means it's not right. And that's when people do do something about it. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit whimsical, but I, I think that it will come down to um, the law supporting our freedom of speech, although we may not be able to, like you say, operate in public spaces and campaign for what is right. We should still be given the right to speak our mind. And, does, and yes, does it create a, a public disturbance? They've used the excuse of many a, 
um, demonstration recently to knock that one on the head as, as a reason not to have it. But that doesn't mean we cannot say what we want to say. We still have a mode of communication. The internet is a very powerful thing. Um, and we have platforms to be able to say what we want to say. We, we won't be restricted. And maybe it comes down to creating a new platform eventually. And I, I can almost see that out of this, that social media, as restricted as it is, um, isn't necessarily governed by anyone. It's self-governed. So what's to say you cannot set up a new um, platform whereby freedom of speech, like Reddit and everything else, is, is freely available, but that, it is also, that it is also widely publicised just as much as any other platform is um, so there has to be a duality in our communications I think and what we're presented with um, and that will come down to policymakers, reformists who want who put those ideas forward to government because they're important to us it's it's our responsibility to do that no one else is going to do it for us <laughs> yeah yeah I, I get that I mean we had uh... Mike Wise on the show last week, or mm -hmm. I suppose yesterday to me in this 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 world. Um, and we, we were talking about sort of reform versus um, sort of replacement of systems, or kind of kind of quite loosely. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked a bit after after the show. And my stance for a while, and I kind of I mentioned it actually during the show that I swing quite violently between let's burn it to the ground and whatever we're left with, we're left with, to actually if we can just infiltrate it in enough levels, if we can get to the hundredth monkey, if we can start to affect cultural changes and and the perception of certain act actions, activities, and and relationships, etc., that they would then start to move move on this. And I just part of me, I guess, is the anarchist in me worries that asking the oppressor to oppress us less kind of mm -hmm. doesn't work. <laughs> Um, in in the the feels that the the political system, especially in this country, is kind of it's muted. It, there is no real discourse. It's a very limited. You know, to be one or the other. And I think one of the things that I've I'm now growing to appreciate about sort of COVID and the lockdowns is that I suddenly went from being a leftist extremist utopianist to a right wing extremist. It, the political spectrum change was insane. I didn't change my opinions in the slightest, but the interpretation by the system changed to me, as well as th hundreds, thousands of people that I know. Suddenly they were, they were disowned by this system. All of a sudden they were, from being categorized as one thing because they were a demon and an enemy to the system in one way, to now potentially being an enemy in another way. And actually all, they, they didn't do anything. They just didn't comply to something. Do you know what I mean? They didn't go against the system. The system moved the, the goalposts. And so for all we may be able to get them to move the posts in one generation without any form of protections, as we're seeing, they can quite easily move them in the next. The Sorry, moving No, 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 no. You've, you've made a great point. The moving of goalposts is what needs to change. <laughs> the, if... Um, if their views are such of ourselves, of, of the activist community, that we are of a, a, a damaging nature to society, but in, a, in another vein actually could be quite useful, then 
why why has that why has that opinion changed so drastically firstly i mean who's lobbying them who are who are those with agendas who might be pinpointing these characteristics and demonizing them because we all know that that happens as well there's a lot of geared interests and that's the one thing that worries me about policy is that policy really needs to be driven by an ethical rationale not for profiteering well to a certain extent there has to be capitalism in order for, for industries to survive but at the heart of that needs to be an ethical promise um and i don't think that the changes that have been made recently specifically with regards to cannabis we're going to go down those lines have been ethical because what we fought for as we know when we were <laughs> pitchforks at dawn it we didn't ask for such a reg, regimented result and there's no room for creativity and it does show that it has been forced into and pigeonholed into a, a completely commercial model and that it is it's it's no longer for the patients it's how much isolate can we sell what is the demand? When will demand be needed next? And it becomes a supply chain, and the honesty in that in in that industry has been lost. Um, and it's it's certainly something that's worrying for me, having worked with patients, have having seen what we okay patients in inverted commas people that you have helped previously to become well through your knowledge of cannabinoid therapy is now being blasphemized by a market that really doesn't deserve it. <laughs> I'm going to get put through the ringer for that, but... <laughs> well, I'm happy for you to walk that back, but I will quite happily walk it forward because... And I, 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 honestly, no, but I, I believe that the industry, I've said this before, the industry is quite happy with where it is. It's progressing nicely to its own checklist. It is on its five-year, 10-year plan. From conversations I've had over the past sort of couple of weeks and months with a few CEOs here and there, people that just generally like me and for some reason keep me in certain loops, um, people are losing interest. Germany's popping off, Luxembourg, Malta is just literally, all of these places are, are going and all of the people that were circling the UK going, well, you're three years, where, where do we put our money? We've got all this money with this vertically integrated infrastructure. Where's our license? Where's our potential market share? And they're just stepping away. So they're now going to back to the Channel Islands that are moving forward, um, say like Guernsey, et cetera, and they're going to try and get into proliferal markets that way. So they then have production that they can then distribute into the UK. And one of the things that I think is probably, I, I can speculate and I'll ask you in a second that I think it's probably going to pisses you off as much as me is the carbon footprint, the sustainability of this is that you are taking a plant that could have been grown, frankly, anywhere. You're creating such restrictions and limitations to it that by the time a bud gets to a person, it's, it's toxic for the environment. The bud itself isn't, sorry, I'll clarify that. But the process that's bringing it there has negated the sequestration of the carbon that the plant could have done. It's, it's caused more damage. And so I just want to get your thoughts on sort of, is, is that potentially what could then happen to mushrooms? I mean, it's something that I've seen a lot of foragers talk of recently that there's been an explosion in interest in mycology and people are going, uh, 
patches where my where mushrooms have, have come season on season and now all of a sudden they're not turning up because people are not respecting the process. They're not allowing for there to be cyclical in the seasonal, what do you call it, reproduction. Which point do I address first? <laughs> <laughs> Elis Joyce. What, what, what was the trigger question? Just put it into a, uh, a nutshell for me. So that, yeah, I loosely segued over, so we'll kind of ignore the segue. I kind of went, went through a few points to arrive at the idea that if we've seen uh, vested interest, greed, and a lack of transparency yeah. beh behind policing, politics, and uh, cannabis reform already, are we likely to see the same thing in, uh, in mycology and especially in, say, entheogenic and psychedelic mushrooms and then I kind of threw in for some reason the carbon footprint argument of sustainability just to screw you up a bit. <laughs> I think it was the last point that threw me off. I was I was there. But okay, so it it full it first depends on whether the market uh, share is available and the end product. So we all know that psilocybin is going boom at the moment and there, there is talk of clinics opening up to prescribe that material but from what i'm hearing the cost of doing so is incredibly high some six thousand pound per patient having to get wanting to go through a psilocybin trial to deal with their mental health which now uh, correct me if i'm wrong on that figure anyone that's fine um but it is quite extortionate and i wonder whether that is because the material itself is coming at a premium and where I have no idea where that material is being imported from, but it seems irrational that it would cost that much if it was made on a local level. It doesn't cost much to grow mushrooms at all. You're looking at a bit of vermiculite, cocoa, another in a medium, um, and a bit of humidity. It's not. It, it's not rocket science, and it shouldn't cost an arm and a leg to do so. Um, are we going to be subject to the same restrictions? It depends on demand. Will the market rise? I think that specifically within the UK, medicinal mushroom grows are loosely. I say medicinal mushrooms. Mushroom grows are increasing, and it's wonderful to see that blossoming. Um, we don't have any regulation associated with medicinal mushrooms at present, other than psilocybin. Um, I'm going to say, so can I just clarify a point, sorry, from probably for, my, well, for myself and the listeners. Um, so when we say medicinal mushrooms, are you including psilocybin or psychoactive mushrooms in that categorization? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they come under the same header. They're all therapeutic. So in my view, that's a medicinal. <clears throat> um but as we don't have a regulatory model associated with mushrooms, we're free to grow. So actually, we're in a prime position in the UK to grow um, mycelial networks and fungi. We don't. We we have no restrictions upon us. Yes, there. I don't. But I don't think that we're going to be subject to the same restrictions as cannabis because it's very. It's a very different. Um, applications so medicinal mushrooms okay if i take psilocybin out of this i'm talking about your reishi your cordyceps and your lion's mane those are therapeutic but they aren't a psychoactive or at least the research does not suggest that they produce a psychoactive response 
-hmm. So in my view, the regulation doesn't have to be as high for those. It's more looking at drug interactions, et cetera. And that, yeah. that's more where we would need the research to be. Um, but we don't have many research projects going on within the UK, but that's not to say that they can't be created. The, the interest is there. The demand is certainly growing, but I can't see it going in the same way that the, the cannabis market mm. um, has gone from that side. Does that make sense? It, it does. It really does. It makes me think then of a, a point, something that I've, I've I kind of championed for a lot of years and took a lot of flack for and uh, with no joy and being kind of proven right in some spheres of uh, the rise of synthetic cannabinoids. Um, and what worries me is a lot of the processes and the research that is being done is being done on synthetic, synthetic psilocin, which is obviously what the body then derives psilocybin into once it goes through like the, the gut process, or you can, uh, mm -hmm. what's the word? You can shortcut it with lemon tech, uh, which was something I discovered in America a few years ago, which yeah. I'm quite happy to champion. Um, yeah. but yeah, so what worries me is then they're patented compounds, then the process by which the, they are, um, derive the process by which they are given through therapy all of these things can be patented processes and i think that's where mm -hmm. then licensing and the restriction and the financing comes in to make it such an exorbitant cost um it's interesting that you say six grand because six grand was what i heard as well was the quotation for the ketamine infusion clinics uh awake and life sciences i think are the the company behind that in bristol and london um and through a network of kind of a few dozen people they're all kind of doing research and, and running off things and creating their own culture, as it were. Um, and one of the things that then worries me is that while they're doing this and they're creating these, this almost, I don't want to say illusion, because I don't mean this, but this kind of perception that that's medicine and that can that will always be medicine. But whereas if you go to Wales or any random place and you find, you know, a heavily agricultural field that's presently or recently had sheep or cows or something similar in, you're going to find mushrooms containing similar compounds. And if you were to then take them in a cultural, traditional way, if you were to do them even in a healing ceremony or in <clears throat> just you and your mates drinking some tea, that's still going to be criminalized. That's still going to be demonized because you haven't gone through the, the proper channels. You haven't taken the therapy in the correct way. And that's what we're seeing currently, I think, with cannabis is that unless it's prescribed, it can't be medicinal, which doesn't make any goddamn sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You make a very strong point. Um, there, there's a, but there's a very strong self-medicating culture within the UK, which I wholly and exclusively blame Holland and Barrett for, <laughs> in that everyone is suddenly a... A health specialist i feel tired oh i should take magnesium oh and it's like <laughs> for what reasons do you think you should take magnesium <laughs> yes. there have to there has to be a central focus i think for people to go to and a resource and a structure but the infrastructure isn't there our medical practitioners aren't being given the the correct information to help them prescribe a more natural product than say a patented product are the is the medical system being given an option <laughs> very unlikely so that's the position we're in it's more that the medical the medical markets should be 
offered more advice and then we're going to we would perhaps see more informed decisions as to where a medicinal model might progress to maybe perhaps a more natural way of treating ourselves for conditions but we're not they are give the only option they are given is patented products so it's our job as scientists and as inform informed individuals and i and i put everybody into that category it's not just scientists it's those who just want to know the truth and want to know how a medicinal works for them it would be lovely to know that their doctor has been given that same information in in the correct fashion and in, a, in an ethical format but it isn't um so that's what needs to change our medical our medical market needs to be a little bit more savvy creative um, and they need, to, they need to be given that permission to do so as well. But I don't think they necessarily do have those permissions. I can't see that we can continue down the lines of a chemical-based society, though, if the general popula population is educated to the hilt that that chemical model isn't good for them. And I think more information is coming out now, and that's why people are turning to natural substances more and more because they know the medical model can't support them and they know that it's a patch and it it will never fully cure them we don't ever go to the root cure or the, sorry the root cause in medicine we treat the symptoms but those symptoms may not be indicative of what happened 10 20 years ago that even created that response so people with uh, fibromyalgia for example have typically shown at some point a very stressful period in their life, yet they've not been given support to deal with that stress. And they're given high, intense, horrible, powerful, potent painkillers. Mm -hmm. So I don't know even where I'm going now with this point, Simpa. <laughs> we've gone, we've gone, we've gone <laughs> into a whole different rabbit hole. But um, I'm, I, I would like to see a better reform in, in the medical mm -hmm. industry for sure. Yeah. I don't think it's fair. <laughs> I think you, you, you touched on something, and it's, it's something I became aware of uh, probably in, I think, about my 20s. So it's quite a while ago when I, I saw in the news this real demonization of holistic medicine. And then I kind of, just a bit of curiosity, going like, well, what is holistic medicine? I started looking at this and going, well, actually, a lot of the patented compounds that they sell for billions are actually just analogs of things that are derived from nature. And that actually, if we had a better understanding of, things like terpenes and and food and omegas and our exercise regime and all of these other things and had a better external relationship with our internal world that we wouldn't need a great deal of their intervention and i think you allude to something that most people instinctively know but it's one of those painful truths we kind of go la 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 no 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 it doesn't happen doesn't happen but we don't really have a wellness industry we have an illness industry. So most of these drugs that are then made, as you said, they're designed to treat one or two symptoms of a condition for life. They're maintenance drugs. They maintain a certain amount of viability above just enough for you, just enough for you. And then if you dare go a bit higher and actually get high or enjoy the relief of this, then you're a bad person. You're a druggie and a criminal. And that line that they've created between it, this full moralizing is so destructive. And I think the one of the things why entheogenic compounds are going to be so vital 
in psychiatry and in just general trauma response and, and mm. culture in general, ab abstract from a medical apparatus, is that it's it gives us insight. It's not just going, oh, I don't feel a thing. It can actually, if you if you set your set and setting and your intention and you sort of cleanse and prepare yourself mentally, physically for this, spiritually for it, you can gain such insight into yourself. You can have an experience that most often is not manifest in a way that you would expect reality to. It's very abstract. It's very colorful. It's very synesthetic. It's very you know, I mean, alter it from reality. But in that, we acquire deep knowledge and insight into ourselves, into our trauma. We, or I personally, and a lot of people I've spoken to, come back with insight into previous experiences that they'd long forgotten, walls they'd built up behind things that all of a sudden they could look at with a new light, a new insight. And I don't think that is true of a traditional psychiatric model that just tries to kind of pacify the manifestations that are most ugly to society whereas allowing the other ones. So look at the comparison of, say, how OCD is dealt with versus borderline personality disorder. One is quite good for capitalism, and actually there are certain traits in that that we'd quite like the whole population to have, whereas then the vast majority of traits in the other one are demonic because we can't regulate that. We can't understand how you're going to operate, how you fit into the system. We can't make you a round peg into a round hole. And whereas these entheogenic compounds and cannabis, again, I think is a wonderfully insightful substance that then gives us the ability to look beyond this simple pathologizing to the roots of these things and go, okay, I may at this point exhibit signs of PTSD or XYZ, but why, why is that? And again, for, for mushrooms, I think that especially the, the comfort and oneness I found with psilocybin containing mushrooms versus any other entheogenic compound, it's like, being accepted it's like being absolved I, I feel the experience and it just it, it washes away that that doubt that self-hatred that loathing that kind of sticks to us from our experience on social media our experience of living in the 21st century and judging ourselves against others so i just i'm just grateful that it exists at all and I am almost not too worried if it gets taken over because I kind of think it will in a lot of ways. I know yourself is vastly so, but I'm I'm quite happy to continue sneak sneaking out in the autumn and uh, seeing what I can find. You know, <laughs> as any responsible person should do, it's a natural substance, and it grew alongside us. It evolved alongside us. It's meant to be there. There's a reason why it even exists. There's a reason why it even still survives. And it's because we need it. Mm -hmm. The environmental factors that ensure that psilocybin survives are thunder, rain, you know, trampling, us moving from one area to another to transport the spores because they're actually fairly low down to the ground. So that's why you don't find them in high grass because they're quite low, so they, their spores can only go so far. Um, and you often find when you've been picking them, a lot more start popping up the next year. Um, it, it, this is a common misconception that overpicking can affect population. And I'll go into that in a, uh, in a different conversation, I think, perhaps, if you do want to talk about it. Please do, because um, I'm, I'm a victim to that misconception as well, clearly. <laughs> It's uh, th there's a, a wide study su to suggest it was done over a number of years, a Swiss study um, that looked at 
the action of overpicking, well, what, what could be termed as overpicking, go to, going to the same spot um, every two or three days and picking the population that's there. And with um, chanterelle mushrooms, they found that it wasn't the overpicking that had um, that made populations decrease. It was the overtrampling. It was the walking on the actual mushroom itself that prevented its spores from proliferating uh, and moving because they've been squashed to the ground. So perhaps it's with chanterelle they don't produce as many spores as other mushrooms do in the gill structures. Um, and that's why they you, you don't find them in mass amounts, especially where again there's high grass and that kind of thing, because they're, they're they're quite low down to the ground. They they've 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 evolved a lot later than other mushrooms, pored mushrooms. Pored mushrooms were some of the first to exist on the planet. Guild mushrooms were later on. Um, they can't they can also not resist things like frost and very cold temperatures which suggests that they their evolution is not as uh, progressed as pored mushrooms because they can withstand great differences in temperature. So therefore, they would have been able to exist for a lot longer and diversify. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So going back to the psilocybin, we are connected to them. We are responsible for their distribution. And in enticing them and ensuring their success within their own environment as much as they need us in order to, to proliferate them we need them to give us their medicine so we worked in harmony with them for many centuries and they also pop up get this they pop up when it's getting dark so when our when our vitamin d levels are a slump we have no energy oh look what comes to save the day Mm -hmm. Isn't that an evolutionary wonder that they come out at that time of year where light is diminishing and we need it because they have got vitamin D in them as well. Ta-da! And they ha that helps with serotonin, as do other mushrooms, which also grow at the same time as them. Uh, so your mottle gills and your banded mottle gills, uh, Paniolus cinctulus, that's, that's the banded mottle gill, which also has psilocybin in it. And they all grow at the same time. Um, just before it gets really, really dark. Mm -hmm. So think darkness. We need something to perk us up because, poor, this is going to be a hard winter. Mm -hmm. So I, I reckon the pagans and the witches and, and the wizards, they all knew what they were doing um, in that time of the year. Um, they would spread the joy with the, uh, the neighbouring, um, with their peers, the populations, the, the villages. I think there would have been specific people that went out to pick those mushrooms. This is my view, what I feel. It's not a truth, but this is my my own view on what it could be. And I, because we know from history that the, there was Father Christmas that used to come down the chimney um, with a bag of swag, and that actually comes from a Nordic tradition where, well, it, the houses would have been covered with snow and the chimneys would have been the only thing exposed. So there would have been a man that came down the chimney, and I owe my ex-boyfriend the, um, the pleasure of knowing this knowledge. He told me that he used to come down the chimney, he used to drop off a bag of flyer Garricks in exchange for gifts of mince pies and et cetera, et cetera. And this is where that Santa Claus mythology developed 
with the presents and it and it was turned into a folklore for children. But originally, yeah, he helped people trip at Christmas because that's what we, <laughs> that's what that's what we did best. We mm. needed it and we needed a new way of thinking in those dark times. Because literally, when it's dark, you don't have enough energy to make yourself feel better. So you need something to change your mindscape, give it creativity. Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of cultures have built things around the solstice. If you look at, I suppose, what became Christmas through its roots, through Christianity and through um, from Greek and Roman um, sort of mythology and the adoption of local traditions and cultures as a way of kind of pacifying the populations and creating well dynasty and empire really um and so yeah i think that there is that intrinsic kind of drive in all of us i must admit that it gets to this time of year and i get almost itchy something in me is just like i just want to get really weird i just want to like the sides of my mouth to hurt from laughing you know the kind of the muscles at your belly it just feels like as you say, we need to kind of combat what happens because especially in, I mean, I live in the, the north of England, so, man, some days you're talking less than Ooh, six, 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 yeah, <laughs> six hours of, uh, of uh, sun sunlight. So, I mean, I, I do take additional vitamin D. I do sort of plan alongside of it, and then I will start sort of microdosing, and I will plan to have mm-hmm. around the solstice um, quite a, a, a larger dose as a way of kind of, you just, you, I feel that it, it shakes the cobwebs out, as you say, and I think it it helps realign a sense of gratitude because we end up at the peak of summer taking for granted that it's light till 10 o'clock at night, that it's, it's, it's warm out. People are out. It's activity. It's alive. And we forget that the human experience, we're a much a victim to, I say a victim, we're um, under the control of the seasons as everything else. And the trees that they bud and they flower and they go through their cycle and they calm and they prepare for the next year. And I think that the experience of being able to use um, entheogenic uh, mushrooms at that time of year helps us as part of that regenerative cycle. Do you know what I mean? So that we move into the next season and we prepare for it so that, I mean, I know every year I get, and I, I do, I failed most years. I come up with new year's resolution and we get it because there's something in us. Once we pass the solstice, your brain starts to go, it's lighter every day. It's lighter every day. It's lighter every day. And there's the British joke of, Oh my God, it's lighter four. It's lighter five. And, and you yeah. know what I mean, but we have that inbuilt gratitude and appreciation. I think that we have this, to go back to kind of the pharmaceutical conversation, in fact, to revisit a lot of what we've already spoke of, we have this disconnection from nature. We think of ourselves as running and ruling dominion over nature and that we're not a part of it. I mean, there's a wonderful image that shows a brain slice, a picture of the universe, an atomic uh, map, and a mycelium cluster. And it's the same goddamn image. You know what I mean? There is something that just showed that we are so intrinsically in, entwined in everything around us, yet something in our ego makes us think that our oh, hubris and we're just so grandized and it's bullshit. And the, again, psilocybin gives you that kind of just wolf and knocks you down a bit and you go, oh, okay, okay. But then it picks you up again and it gives you that, that rounded space to, to, yeah, grow and evolve, I think. It's definitely a mushroom of evolution. Um, there's strong evidence to suggest that uh, mushrooms may have been part of our evolution to think, oh, we could produce fire, or, 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 you know, rubbing two sticks together. How, how did we think this up being so primitive? Mm-hmm. Our creativity must have been spurred by something. And when we were so primitive as, as cavemen, we would have also had a very limited language 
So sharing ideas and sharing our experiences and, you know, oh, this stone rubbed against this stick made fire. It would have been quite difficult. However, I think through this, and I would love an anthropologist to be, I'm sure that there's studies um, and research to back this up, that our brains needed to evolve in order to become more civilized. And I, it was largely probably down to mushrooms that that even happened. Yeah, it was the so we, one of the the roughest term of it is reptilian brain, mammalian brain, frontal cortex, mm-hmm. and so the stoned ape theory, which is sort of what you're sort of alluding to, is the uh, interaction with entheogenic compounds in nature, um, because of their neuroplastic plasticity and neurogenitive qualities, they then created sort of yeah these these pathways, and I think that before we had. Mm-hmm major constructs of religions and things like this. And I think a lot of them actually come out of a misunderstanding of our relation to nature, um, of worshipping things. I mean, you look to the Greeks and the Romans and they had a, a God for the sun and a God for whatever. And I think that the ideas of them, the religions and the way they spoke of it was a way of transferring scientific knowledge to a population that didn't have a conceptual idea of science. So it kind of worked well to, to transfer this. But I think that even before that, as you said, that we would have recognised this thing appears every year. Even just that, just that is curious enough for me. Even as a 33-year-old man, it triggers that childlike curiosity in me. Why does it only appear this time of year? What is it doing? What is it? What does it want? Do, do you know what I mean? And I think that we'll have, we'll have seen that. And, in, and as you say, that then eating them, because even non-psychoactive mushrooms, then um, like Reiki and Lines, I'm going to butcher whichever ones they are. Some of the medicinal mushrooms out there, because I don't know the specific knowledge, but you will correct me in a moment, um, can also be neuroregenerative. So then in the process of then eating them, they're getting, as you said, the extra vitamins and everything else and improving their general sort of health and well-being. And then although the concept, here, mate, you want to try these. I imagine, as you said, that the, the I don't want to say civilizing, because that sounds very colonial, but the evolving of culture and society, I mean, it's primitive, most primitive mm-hmm. forms in microcosms, I think will have yet been that sharing and just showing, I can eat, you can eat. And the, and the guy that ate, the one that died, no one else ate. And so then that, that knowledge kind of builds in and of itself that even if I can't say don't eat that one, if I see you picking it, I'll tell you not to, and then you'll know not to. And knowledge was then passed beyond pre-linguistics. And I think that, as you say, yeah, the ability to then be high on these things, because most of us, most of my listeners out there that have had these uh, these experiences, uh, uh, a high dose of these kind of things may have experienced this kind of telepathy. This you sat with a mate and you're like a few hours in, you kind of look at each other and he goes, get something, goes, makes a cuppa. Do you know what I mean? Or somebody that just, you bring you a food and you don't have to say anything. You pass that and you kind of look at it and there is a more of a connectivity, a harmonizing of consciousness. So I just wanted to get kind of your thoughts on, well, on, on that as a concept, really. I can speak from personal experience and the experiences that I have brought to me, my personal experiences that, yeah, I agree with you. My, um, my appreciation of saying something without words was, was definitely heightened. I felt very connected to the environment around me as well. My connection to nature increased. It took, it takes you away from the mundane, the things that you don't necessarily want to think about. And in fact, when you're 
in a, in a state of tripping, you when you think about something you don't want to think about, you don't want to think of, you really don't want to think about, you're like, no, 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 no. And you start understanding how your thought processes are, can sometimes work against you. It gives you reflection time. Mm. I think it gives you time to pause and think about the emotions that are brought up in your body when you do think about something to assess whether or not that is right for you moving forwards. It's a very evolutionary process having taken mushrooms and, and even in very small doses, you can see a massive difference on your day-to-day practices and how they change like, Oh, okay. Well, instead of rushing to work, maybe I'll get up an hour early. I'll do yoga. I'll be less stressed. And I have a really good day at work. It kind of, it shows you other options. Uh, it increases creativity for me. And I think that a lot of mental health issues are born out of boredom. In fact, it's the, well, we obviously have genetic mental health conditions, which are unfortunate in that they're passed on. You have a predisposition to producing less of a hormone or more of a hormone. However, medicinal mushrooms can remove that as such a stringent play on your conscious. And you can think, okay, what can I do to better make my life more easy for myself? Because I know that I have this predisposition. You, you find you're more gentle with yourself, I think, mm. when, you take, when you take mushrooms. Yeah. What do you do you agree with the the gentleness? Do you feel like after it you're like, oh, you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna think like that anymore. Yeah, that's old hat, you know. Yeah. I think for me, it, I mean, I often speak of how I feel Freud kind of butchered the ego, the super ego, and the id, and I speak of the head, the heart, and the horror. So instinct is kind of the for me you're about to step into the road and you suddenly stop and a car flies past heart is then emotional center processing the sensations of the world as it were and your emotive reactions to them. And then brain is much more linguistical, uh, problem solving, etc. Mm-hmm. And I feel that then when these are out of line, the taking entheogenic compounds can strengthen the impulses of some of them. So sometimes I will have like, I'll, I'll take sort of mushrooms or whatever. And then a few days later, they'd just be, I don't know, stupid shit. Like my brain's just going, oh, I'm just, I'm so baked. I'm just going to go to bed. I can't be asked. I'm like, oh, no, get off the couch. Go wash your face. Go actually put some moisturizer on, like brush your teeth. Like, prepare. Don't just, you know what I mean? It, is, it heightens that voice in me that goes, no, do the right thing. Do the thing. Do the thing. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, also, it also almost pacifies what would normally be an aggressive response from this impulsive ego that is more driven by, I agree with you that it's, it's boredom, but it's it's not because of un, understimulation. It's because of overstimulation. We're overstimulated by systems that are repetitious. So the scroll, mm-hmm. the scrolling mm-hmm. of things, the liking of things, the reading mm-hmm. of things. That mm-hmm. we've got this predictive machine that is running so fast, and then we're almost 
taught to persecute our own thoughts that don't operate well within the mechanisms of capitalism. Can this make you money? Is it a hustle? You know, look at what we've done with hustle culture and third jobs and all of these other distractions of things. And yet I agree that our soul is bored where as Jim Carrey speaks of it with Mm -hmm. depression, that we're, we're bored of playing our avatar. And I think again, these compounds connect us with the kid, the kid in us wakes up for a couple of hours and goes, the fuck have you done here? What is this life? What are you doing with it? And instead of you breaking down and having that neurotic reaction to it, most people then with kindness and compassion and that softness, that safe space they generate for themselves, if they've taken set and setting into consideration, will then be able to kind of go, you're right. I'm sorry. I, I forgive you. How do we grow from this? And if you listen, that little voice again goes, well, actually, what I want you to do is this. And have you thought about this? And, and if you really, instead of trying to control the experience and go into it with a certain expectation rather than um, an openness to whatever happens, happens, you know, you can have a certain knowledge of what to expect, but you shouldn't then be annoyed or frustrated if it is not then the experience you are given. In fact, putting up opposition to it, I think, can be almost destructive at times. I know I've had, not necessarily on mushrooms, but on LSD, some experiences where I've kind of gone, I'm done now. And no, you, you don't get to do that. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of, you know what I mean? It kind of forces you to, to sit with it, but it also gives you the ability to sit with it. And I think that in and of itself is, is, is a gift. I don't know how else to describe it. I don't believe in, in mythologized kind of deityized God but I do believe in an intrinsic all-pervasive intelligence. And I think mushrooms, especially psychedelic ones, are just possibly the greatest gift we have. (laughs) They certainly have neurogenesis at the heart of what they are as well. Psilocybin mushrooms, fundamentally, if we look at it from a scientific standpoint, they help to build new connections in the brain. And we know that we are highly creative in our mental processes, but there is evidence to suggest uh, with depression in that a neural pathway will become heightened. And if that neural pathway is continually stimulated, it's very difficult for other parts of the brain to also be active. So what mushrooms do, if you look at if there's experiments where they put the cap on the neuro sensory cap and they see the the colors that light up after a psilocybin mushroom experience and the whole head is activated mm-hmm. insinuating that the whole brain is now functioning as one and it isn't working the individual parts aren't working in isolation so it allows the brain to be more creative new pa- new connections are being made between thought patterns and that thought pattern saying to that one, well, I think that's crap. Actually, I agree with you. And I'm going to do something different about it. It's, and we, we're still learning about that connectivity between neurogenesis and um, a positive mindset. And you can compare it, to, again, to um, perhaps a Buddhist philosophy. They've done similar experiment, experiments, again, with the caps. The whole head is lit up. They're, they're, it's... The, the calming sensation of meditation and coming into center and coming into focus is very similar to that which you get from um, a psilocybin experience too. That the, the brain is allowed to function as one. And we, we've been overstimulated by digital media and just this part, 
just this yeah. flipping part is working. <laughs> and that's the bit we kind of want to calm down because it's always chattering. And that's what mu mushrooms do is they go, calm down a bit, dear, calm down, you know, just take a chill pill. But we still don't understand how it does it. And we more research needs to be done in order to support the industries to suggest that maybe a full spectrum product is more valuable than an isolate. But without the research, we can't really prove that, can we? So if we have, if we, and also if we know we're subject to a geared system, which we know we are, it's up to those who have the knowledge to pass it on and ensure that those with an ethical background also get a shot at this. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I'm trying to do at the moment is if I see someone has an idea and they, they're working from an ethical place, but they don't necessarily have the, um, the connections or the network to help them make that a reality, I damn well make sure they make it a reality because otherwise if they don't do it, nobody else will. And if they do it, then maybe more people will do it. So we, yeah. we have to act responsibly in um, giving the medical sector the correct advice. And that's going to come down to, science, to scientists and to activists going, hang on a minute, actually, we found this out. <laughs> yeah. And bringing it to the fore. It's, it's difficult because I agree that that is the mechanism and that is still the same mechanism we are working out with cannabis at the minute. And mm -hmm. I, look, I look to my, uh, my I was going to say brothers and sisters, but to be, I guess, more inclusive, my humans in arms in in america on the west coast and what seems to be a collapsing legalized system and what was created to be a very corporate monopolistic uh asset stripping operation effectively let's call it and i see the way that the system has streamlined itself to co-opt and control the potential let's call it revolutionary potential of um mass numbers of people consuming these things freely. And so I wanted to kind of pitch or like get your, your, your thoughts on if then obviously I've had as well the conversation of trying to prescribe basically effectively microdosed psilocybin mm -hmm. containing drugs, but I've also heard obviously of infused uh, therapies. And I just want to get your thoughts on somebody that has alluded to having obviously personal experiences, what it, what it, what it could potentially do to limit the the euphoric the revelatory experience of the substance if it's in a a white room on a clinic bed with a psychiatrist do, do you know what i mean I, I worry that yes you may get that neurological benefit and you may get the reduction of depression but you're then going to go back into a capitalist system and work that job and not leave that relationship and not talk to your kids about whatever not question your sexuality not do whatever the thing you've been doing to repress yourself into that position mm -hmm. so I just, I just worry about co-option basically i'm the anecdote i used to say to encapsulate this is when lsd first came about it was obviously cia and they were going to do whatever then it became revolutionary to the people and then um 
Oh crap, my brain's just gone dead. <laughs> Sorry, two seconds. Um, so then, um, then LSD in the 21st century became microdosed for productivity. So it became a big thing in Silicon Valley that you would then consume more LSD to improve your productivity. So kind of the opposite of the ethos that arose through the summer of love. And I feel that that was a co-option of the substance to stop its potential revolutionary um, danger to the system. Whew. Okay, so to, going back to your first point with regard to it, would it have a therapeutic benefit if it's done in a clinical setting? Well, you can safely say, yes, it will have a therapeutic benefit and there will be certain people who will really benefit from that, who are at crisis points. But the, the psychological support needs to be provided as well as that therapy. And I, I, can't, I can't see that the medical sector for one second is going to allow people to have an experience and then not provide them with the psychological support, psychological support afterwards because it would be deemed negligence if we're going to go down those lines. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that clinical settings exist because I, there are different spectrums of depression. And if it's, I don't necessarily know if psilocybin is the right choice for those who are at crisis point. I mean, when you've got a fire, you don't chuck more coal on it. You don't stoke the fire. It's, it'd be like giving someone with psychosis a five-gram trip. You just wouldn't even do it if you were a cl clinician. But there have to be guidelines mm -hmm. adopted, and there has to be research done to suggest what is the right route. And we've got X amount of people that have tried it in this fashion. We've had X amount that have had a placebo, and we've given them a whacking great big dose, and one of them jumped off a bridge. I mean, that's not the regulatory model that anyone would want um, moving forward, we, we couldn't have that much um, many possibilities and permutations from, from, from the research done. So they'd have to do it in very concentrated um, and well thought out procedures in order to see whether the application and the amounts that they're giving is bringing about the response that they want. I think I've said that in the way, the way that I wanted to. You, you did I it. hope it's understood, but we can't be a nanny state either. So uh, we should let the scientists do what they need to do, but they need to work with a certain level of responsibility as well to ensure that the end resulting data is transparent and is going to bring about a solution, not yet another set of problems that the government can jump on and go, you know, you know, Dave, who took five grams, that's not the way you do it, Mr. Scientist. Let's all have a think about this <laughs> and think about the right process forward. And they are doing, and there are, I'm not one of those in those groups. There are groups that are already doing research and trialing it with specific conditions, but it's on specific conditions. It's not a generalistic view of, okay, let's look at how it affects mental health. It's how does it affect bipolar? How does it affect someone with an eating disorder and they're very concentrated projects. We need to share the information between those projects as well in order to look at how psych, uh, psychedelic therapy can be beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get and obviously res respect everything that you, you've sort of said there. 
Um, the last sentence that you, you sort of finished on, that it did make sense, by the way, it did make sense, yeah. um, kind of highlights almost the point that I guess I'm kind of making. Um, there's a lot of studies to suggest that basically the consumption of entheogenic compounds typically creates almost socialist ideas that if in isolation people taking compounds, they typically can, we shouldn't be oppressed. We should live together. We should live in communes. I mean, look at what happened with, again, through the the, the 60s and uh, 70s with different subcultures mm-hmm. that arose around the consumption of the different compounds. And what I guess worries me is that the closer we've got, we're now three years down the line with uh, prescribed cannabis here in the UK, and it's almost creating more of a perception that their stuff is safer and the other stuff is somehow more dangerous, that without their intervention and their control and their regimented restrictions, that it, the natural thing becomes more dangerous through the perception of the public. So therefore they don't engage with it unless it's through their mechanisms. And their mechanisms are, here's five mil of oil, not taking half a gram and really getting off and going out there. You know, it's it's vaping a little bit, not, and I'm, again, obviously I'm for therapeutic dose of various compounds, but I'm also very much for people's right to explore their consciousness at whatever level they deem fit. And I think that that mm-hmm. is going to occur regardless. So I think that I just don't mm-hmm. want to see a medical cannabis model, as it were, a medical psilocybin, a medical MDMA and a medical thing arise and then the people who are like, but me and my mates just want to take it. Five of us are going to go and have a fire in the woods and that, that'll never be prescribed. <laughs> that'll never be allowed because they can't control the outcome. So I agree there should be a form of integration after any form of high dose uh, psychedelic or entheogenic experience. I keep using those words interchangeably for anyone that doesn't yet use entheogens as the uh, correct sort of terminology for it. Um, but yeah, there the needs to be that integration and that can be through shamanic, that can be through trip ex- experienced friends, or that can be through just people you're with, you know, or, or even just sat with yourself and doing that integra- integrative work. But what worries me is then a psychiatrist with their potential inclinations and worldview and spiritual beliefs could then potentially control or coerce your interpretation of the experience. Does that make sense? It does. Again, I'm, I'm, just, I, I'm, just, I, I'm just a bit distrusting of authority. Sorry to jump in there, but that's my no, little no, paranoia no. there. No, you, you have raised some interesting points. I mean, traditional psychological therapy certainly doesn't support the idea of uh, sixth sense or picking up on emotions or... <laughs> empathy so much they're very well confined structures uh, that they they adopt and and philosophy well maybe not philosophies but you know what i'm trying to say it's there will always be access to therapeutics such as psilocybin because you can go out in october and pick them yourself i mean if people really don't want to adopt them a medicinal model they don't have to there's nothing telling you that you have to we only have to look at canada and what's going on there with regards to the regulation and people now are growing it themselves at home because what they're getting from the medicinal market isn't good enough in their view um there aren't the right terpene profiles or the cannabinoid profiles that they're looking for and it's like pigeonholed and boxed and put in a nice little 
white packet and the, the experience is lost for them, the end experience. So what does that, what does that mean in the long term? It probably means that the medicinal model wouldn't last for that long. And again, we would have to look at regulation. We would have to look at the law because what the, the, the confinements they have put on um, using it as a therapy have meant that commercially it was never going to work for them anyway because no, not, not many people are going to adopt it because it doesn't work for them personally. But have we communicated that effectively enough? Possibly not. Again, it's up to us to communicate what we expect for ourselves and it doesn't necessarily just have to be the activists that do so. It has to be the general population. The general population have to be given the option to state, to know that they can say, actually, I still want to go out with my mates to the park, like you said, and go and sit round a fire. I find that's more beneficial to me than having a session with Linda for 30 minutes on a white couch, where actually I came out of it and it reminded me of the last time I had my vaccine. And I got really panicky <laughs> and it was a horrible experience. Um, so I, I don't know whether the medicinal model is, is always what is, is going to thrive. I think people's um, perceptions will overrule that myself mm. from what I've seen. Um, and you won't, again, you only have to look at Canada to know that people aren't going to stand for something so strict. It doesn't work. Yeah. And I think actually in, in, defense or against my own point um, or fears there really I think that um, yeah I, I think that anything they kind of do any progress made on their level increases awareness increases that rebellious spirit in us to go well yeah but it's, it's not fully illegal like they can do it so we, we can do it and I think it will kind of create that space but then I, I just worry for the thousands of people that just get caught up in criminalization that then get their entire lives destroyed. They get painted as villains, as evil, vicious, violent thugs that would destroy society when actually what they're most often doing is seeking a way to escape either the trauma of their life, be it spiritual, physical, mental, psychological, you know what I mean? Or they're looking to just find meaning, purpose. That's one of the reasons I first started like really exploring entheogenic compounds was I felt I had addressed a lot of my trauma. I had come to accept my narrative and my lot in life, as they say. I still had expectations and desires and hopes, I guess I wanted for the future, but I had this certain pervading sense of no myth, no narrative, no story. I mean, obviously I've become an activist and writer, I guess, since, but it was at that time that I really started to recognize that, I wasn't really living my life for me. I was living as I was supposed to. So I was trying to be what I was meant to be as a, a man of my age. Do you know what I mean? And then in, in taking these, these substances, I found a, a deeper sense of identity that I think has rewarded me ever since. And anytime I revisit the experience, as you said, it, it can be far more rewarding, I feel, than making myself intentionally vulnerable to a therapist, especially with the way the system often works, that you'll end up repeating your story and your back history in such a callous and cold way to a stranger that almost dehumanizes and desensitizes you from it. Whereas the profound and the mysterious experience of entheogens to me is 
it's a reconnection to, like I said, that childlike state of self that is mm-hmm. forgiving, that is accepting, that is loving, that is welcoming, but is also wanting, wanting mm-hmm. of the world. And it, it reinvigorates my sense of, of narrative. Do you know what I mean? That I'm not here just to passively consume. I'm not here to just fit in and to just roll through the, the motions to get married, have the kids, get the mortgage and hit the milestones. And I think that is a direct result of my interaction with these compounds. And so again, I, I still worry that if a medical only model is adopted and Johnson and co push this 10 year drug plan and anyone that doesn't have six grand to get the therapy, then in 10 years, it's, we're going to be back here trying to get onto that, that narrative. I agree that people will rebel against it and certain groups that talk certain ways or people from the certain class or a certain color or a certain ethnicity are going to be allowed to do what they want and others are going to be highly criminalized and demonized and scapegoated as the reason why these products need to cost six grand, why you can't grow them at home, why we have the right to monitor your text messages and to invade your privacy. You know, it's, it's a scary thing that we're almost accepting that these things shouldn't be criminalized and we should have access to them, but at the same time going, there should be an authoritative figure that decides what I think and how I think ultimately. The medicinal market has a place, uh, but it doesn't have a place in making your decisions for you. But again, I'll go back to my original point with regards to that is that they have to be informed that that there has there has to be the right research done in order to know what model there does need to be moving forwards. And I'll play devil's advocate. Who's to say taking a two gram dose every two weeks is what's right for you? Mm-hmm. Who's not to say that taking 0.2 for two weeks and then doing nothing and then doing a five gram dose isn't the best route for you? But we don't have that data to know what is right for us and also in what format that medicinal should be um, given to us in order to get that data. So whether that's natural or isolates, we, we have to compare the two. There has, it, that would be a very fair test, what we would call as a fair test. It's not a geared test and it's not a geared study to prove or disprove something in the bet for the benefit of a, um, a commercial venture. <laughs> As we know, it does happen. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I guess it does, yeah. And I guess my hope as we move on from this topic is that as you say, that rebellious spirit, I guess, inside of us kind of goes, yeah, all right, all right. I mean, we're going to keep the truth alive and the tradition and the knowledge with the internet and everything else, no matter how much they try and suppress and censor and, and, and silence, we find a way to proliferate this information and gather together and share it. So I think that'll mm-hmm. continue regardless of whatever the system seeks to do. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'll put a pin in my pessimism for now and uh, we'll revisit this in a year or so and see where we are. Um, the, the other side of things that I guess we haven't really spoke of is the industrial and commercial applications of mycelium as a building block as sort of you can create like leathers from mushroom. Um, mm-hmm. So I just wanted to kind of run through a, a, a couple of those with you. Of course. Well, the, there are plenty of companies popping up now who are creating uh, bio-based uh, bio fabrics 
and materials that can be used in everything from your clothing uh, to the walls that we build to make our homes. Um, it's whether they, it, it's, it's whether that we will be able to position those new materials as a, as a good solution in replacement of current resources, such as bricks and mortar, if we're talking about construction. Um, so part of the work that I like to do is ensuring that the, there is a commercial viability for it, but that that project would be able to go ahead and a market could be developed because there's need for it. So it's building the interest for that through various projects and making sure it survives. But we're always going to be up against the petroleum industry. Mm. But even there, we can see that there is more focus around uh, renewable energy. And hopefully these larger FTSE companies are going to invest more heavily into sustainability. And I think that there's more definitely more of a drive towards that. We're seeing more increased interest in electric cars than and petrol based cars. We're seeing a mental shift. Everyone notices that everyone is thinking about their effect on the environment. So there is a definite need for these materials to exist. It's just how consistent the end material can be. So a lot of the time with bio-based materials, it's making sure that the end result is consistent. And when you're working with a natural fiber, that's not always so easy. Yeah, I've been, I think one of the, you're talking about projects of viability. I remember reading a while ago, Ikea looking into the idea of creating and growing their packaging effectively. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go on. Uh, so that, that, yeah, if you, if you know more on it, then please do uh, uh, elaborate. Yeah, so they, IKEA was looking, I mean, there was press to suggest they were looking at this back as far as 2016. Um, and I'm, I don't know how far ahead they are with that project at the moment. It's still being discussed in 2021. In fact, it's funny you say that because I was looking at it today. I was like, have they actually gone ahead with it? There was enough talk about it. Um, but they're using a mixture of uh, mycelium and other raw materials such as uh, wood shavings or, um, I don't know, hemp, cardboard. they there's, there is reason for this to go ahead because we could use waste. We could use like, so when a logger comes and cuts down a tree that's perhaps diseased, the wood chip could now be used for something more useful than just spreading on garden paths. It could become a function for, and a, and a strong substrate for most of our materials moving forwards. Um, I think what will need to be adopted is a mental shift and more investment going into driving these industries. So I'm hoping to see that more investment is, is going to go ahead in making sure that those industries survive. But there has to be the need within society and there has to be the need beyond petroleum. And again, that comes to influences showing that it's an option, society responding to that saying, yes, that's what we want. And then the market is driven from there. 
the, the drive is always going to come from the consumer. So a lot of the work that needs to be done is educating the consumer on a local level um, as I, I get really, really frustrated when I go to different areas of the country and one area of the country is doing recycling, one area isn't. I've actually called up yeah. councils before. I was in Scotland and I was like, where's the, where's the plastic bin? And my boyfriend at the time was like, we don't, we don't have a plastic bin. What do you mean? I was like, you don't have a plastic bin? And I called up the local council. I was, why do they not have a plastic bin? And <laughs> we were having put it in place in that town. So I rang up all the neighbours and said, would you like a plastic bin? And they said, yes, we'd love a plastic bin. And I said, I've got 20 names on this poll. They all want a plastic bin. And they had to put it in in the local town. But you have to... There has to be the need, there has to be the drive, and there has to be the desire for it, and you have to ask for it. Um, we haven't got enough education um, on a local level that helps people know what they can recycle and what they can, can't recycle. A lot of what they could recycle could also be used as a substrate for bio-based materials. So let's, let's look at things on a local level more as to how we can educate ourselves. So that my very, very crude and uh, sophomoric understanding of this is then effectively you grow mycelium to work as like a glue, is it loosely between yes. the substrate in a yes. uh, mold effectively to then form mm -hmm. into, yeah. So we then, yeah, we're looking at a point where you could then use a renewable source in terms of creating of mycelium of then inoculating uh, the substrate can we use destructive and polluting substrates so could you currently use non-biodegradable plastics to then create like capture technology in the same way you'd look at i call it cancrete these days mm -hmm. um broken down husk and herd of, of cannabis plant and limestone and water and then you're sequestering mm -hmm. and trapping carbon could you then use it to then make building material that then wouldn't degrade. I'm thinking basically of using petroleum-based plastics now because they're full of BPAs, BPCs, and a lot of volatile chemicals that we're now learning are really destroying everything as they slowly leach in, into the world. So if mm -hmm. we could grab all that shit, we're going to need to do something with it at some point. So is it viable to use it as a building resource or is that just another kind of, we're passing it on to a future generations kind of problem? I have you heard about the research of um, plastic-eating fungi? Yes, yes. I, I found that on a rabbit hole. I dove in one night down uh, Paul mm -hmm. Stamets' work. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So a lot of the pollutants that we are subject to could actually be digested by mushrooms. Um, they, petroleum is an organic substance is it has other linking chains but fundamentally it has a hydrocarbon backbone which is what mushrooms want to eat because they like carbohydrates which again is just a carbon bond a hydrogen bond an oxygen bond and that's it with the very uncomplex carbon like um, hydroxyl groups that they could digest and that material is then remediated it's removed it's no longer an issue the only issue with using mycelium to break down plastics is that we would want to ensure that the species of mushroom we're using doesn't compete with a local species that we have 
in that it could destroy a population of mushrooms because this other one that they put in in situ could outcompete. Because we know that wind travels and wind carries spores. So there's nothing to say that, say, for example, you had a dump and they had an, an, an inordinate amount of uh, unrecyclable plastic and they put a particular mushroom on there that can break it down. If that mushroom is then going to compete for the same environment because it's spores spread from that pile to a neighboring forest, then you have affected a whole ecosystem. So there isn't a one size fits all uh, model that we can go to. We have to work with the natural environment, the local environment to that dump or to that problem if we're going to apply mushrooms to uh, remove the toxins from that ecosystem. Is it possible to create like single cycle of terminator mushrooms, as it were? Again, I'm still quite new new to the, the concept of this. I've enjoyed it for years, but then I realized when I watched uh, a documentary on Netflix, the, the magic world of magic mushroom world of or the magical world of mushrooms, or whatever it's called. I kind of got halfway in that and went, there's a lot I really don't know. Um, but so what I'm thinking is, could you then create engineer? Uh, a strain then of, of mycelium that then would spore into mushrooms as part of its life cycle that then wouldn't proliferate? <sighs> or we get a freaky science up in here? Well, I think that's going to be genetic mud time if we're looking at preventing a mushroom from producing spores. I mean, that's it's, that, that, that's what it does. Mm. Um, I, the answer is I don't know. I think that's probably where my knowledge would cease there. But yeah, uh, when the, you're making... Sorry. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, cause the other thought that just came into my head there is one of the reasons that is speculated to see why we're seeing a fertility crisis in males across the world is because we're eating a credit cards with the plastic a week, which is secreting BPAs, which are an endocrine disruptor. Okay. Obviously, I'm not suggesting mushrooms have an endocrine system. I don't know what the correlation of this thing is there, but it, could there be something then in finding something that then would be a affected by that mechanism so it would then slow down its its potential um reproduction or am i just getting too theoretical uh, you can if we go back to biofabrics you you can stop the the end material from affecting the local environment by killing the spores so once they've made the the molds and they've combined the husk or the oat or the wheat or the wood chips with the mycelium it creates a very hard structure it's cellulose and lignin it's very hard but then they heat treat that material so that the spores are no longer active so if it was biodegraded in nature it's not going to affect the local environment but if you're losing using a live culture of mushrooms and applying that to a problem you aren't going to be able to control how quickly that spreads until you see what it does. I mean, you could do it in isolation and there will, I'm sure, be research done to show how quickly those mushrooms can eat the plastic, but there's probably not enough done yet on how much it can affect the local environment. And that that is what is being discussed in the community with regards to remediation and association with mycology currently. It's the responsibility for the local ecosystem that we need to be aware of. I said this this image of Peter, that Peter Jackson movie that was done from the graphic novel, I think it was, and it's like the cities are on wheels and they drive around. And it was that kind of vehicle 
but almost that if you could go and scoop up large amounts of the earth and you run it through processing where effectively you grow it in a giant mobile warehouse that is then through renewable carbon capture energy and hydroponics you could you wouldn't want hydroponics you'd want as living soil because then you could use the mycelium as part of then the cannabis plants to create carbon sequester from it as well to then create biomass to generate its own power to power basically the development and the purifying of, of soils effectively through a, a cyclical i think that's we're gonna have to end up looking at actual like what do they call it uh geoforming effectively we're really gonna have to look at it's a global problem we're at now i think it's well and good we can look at inoculating certain set and doing whatever but just one of the 500 forever chemicals c8 which is the thing off teflon the non-stick pans is now in 99 percent of mammal blood that's just one of one of the things you know i mean then if you want to look at some of the other things i said about the we eat credit cards with the plastic i mean in this goddamn country 0.01 percent of cattle feed is, is plastic it's part of our recycling strategy Do you know, when these systems are so dis disconnected that i guess we almost as the science science sci-fi sort of nerd i guess in me is almost thinking oh, yeah we need these this vast engineering, we need this uh, marriage that's coming together between our desire to save the planet and reform and the damage that we've done, but also utilizing that technology to not just further enslave us and create capital, but actually to create wealth. And I mean that not in the sense of finance, I mean that in terms of community, connection, love, experience, memories, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's certainly what's created a... a- a disconnect so far is not having that merriment between industries and not having uh, a circular economy is what you're describing there. It's the connection between um, the production of a food source that also supports other industries and it will be absorbed into the environment again. And it's all very cyclical. Yes, that is the ideal scenario. We just don't have the infrastructure to support it. That's not to say that it can't exist, because it certainly can. <laughs> um, and the the project that you're describing uh, with regards to um, creating crops that would also form part of these, these fabrics, that is very much being explored at the moment. The trouble we have is we don't have enough land. Mm. A lot of our land is also so deplete of nutrients, it can't support crops. So that, that's another reason why, you know, a, a hemp-based um, or a nitrogen-fixing plant acting as the substrate for bio products, like, I don't know, from insulation to the walls on your house could be very viable but it's not viable because we don't have the space to grow this. So you were talking about sustainability earlier. And one of the concerns is that if we, if we don't keep things local, we're going to have to buy it in. So even if we did create a, a model where bio-based products are, are useful, we might have to start importing the substrates, et cetera, from other countries like France, who's got a massive landmass, Italy, uh, Eastern Europe, where they have a lot more land than we do. They're, we are severely overpopulated. Um, and that's not through any fault of our own. That's 
concentration of industry in certain pockets of the country. We do have land, but we don't, wouldn't necessarily want to use the land that is available for these kind of industries because we also need to support other farming. We need to support farm. We need to support the production of crops. Um, so part of the work that I'm doing at the moment is to look at where could we open up that landmass from in support of a more circular economy. I can't talk much more about it, but just know that it is it is being explored. Good, 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 <laughs> good to know. Good to know because yeah, like sorry, I kind of I, I was listening and fully present there, but my brain was just. No, no, all, no. all kinds of visions. I'm a quite a synergistic person. I kind of had an image of, of all things. Um, I can't remember his name now. From Gladiator, when he's walking and he's running his hands through the wheat, as you as you were speaking. Then I was just thinking about land, and I was thinking about what was able to be accomplished with the technology and limitations. The aquifers that were created thousands of years ago, the the technology and the means and the the need were the same as what we're doing now. And so the modern equivalent of that is, I think, there's a 600 mile aquifer built. I can't remember where. I think it was China. It was built by China, but I don't remember where, as in Chinese engineering. And it over it, they calculated down to an inch. They got it within an inch tolerance over 600 goddamn miles. So we have the ability to create unbelievably specific and pinpointed engineering. And we have, I guess, in pockets of isolation, the understanding and awareness of how to not destroy ourselves and everything else on this goddamn planet. But it's almost like we need that that mycelium connection we need that network that underground network to really understand that we are interconnected that actually what the farmer in india puts on his ground affects what my next door neighbor's kids are going to eat in a grand sense of things that what policies i vote for what politicians mm -hmm. i vote for determine the, the future of the air quality the, mm -hmm. of understanding the interconnectivity of all of these things and I think in a lot of ways that brings me back to, I guess, not just psilocybin, but medicinal mushrooms that, again, are seeming to have neurological benefit in improving, I don't want to say like your typical IQ, but people's perception, their in, in intellect of awareness, if that makes any sense. So, I mean, intellectual awareness, there you go, that makes more sense. <laughs> it does, and we can see quite strongly well I, I say we see this question I have seen observational evidence that a disconnect from society is creating more disease in society a lack of connection with nature uh, is creating more mental health-based conditions that we don't really need we know that by putting our feet on the earth within 10 seconds, we instantly feel calmer. <clears throat> but it's not something that everyone has access to living in a city. So typically in cities, mental health conditions are <laughs> they're just rife because they're, they're, the brain is so in need of green and it's in need of the smells. It's in, in need of the complex terpenes that are provided by nature come from conifers, from pine trees, from birch trees, from oak trees, all of which provide a substrate for medicinal mushrooms to grow on. You very often find medicinal mushrooms grow themselves on very medicinal plants. That's how they, that's how they develop 
and manufacture these complex chemicals within their mycelium tissue that they can impart to us because they've absorbed it from the host tree. It's, and because we, okay, let, let's go back to my theory. My theory is, and there's a few people that have disregarded this, but I'm still sticking by it. We lost a lot of our herbal medicine heritage when we burned women at the stake for being witches. We don't see as much knowledge in, in U, the UK, especially as we do in places like Eastern Europe, where they weren't rolling witches down in barrels to see whether they'd survive or not. Mm -hmm. They came out the other side going, yes, we still got our plant materials. No one can, no one can stop us. And they, it's inherent in their culture. They're going out as families to go and pick mushrooms. They're discussing what meals they're going to make with those mushrooms. They spend time preparing them. We have certainly lost that disconnect in our culture for what is around us. So part of what I do is, is just showing people that they have the option to give themselves the medicine that they so need, whether that's increased oxygen, whether it's having a walk, feeling connected to what is around them, to having a meal that was free that they didn't have to pay for and they got from a forest that they know and they trust and they isn't surrounded by rubbish. And they've picked their meal for that evening. That's very empowering for some people to have that knowledge that they can look after themselves if everything went, you know, peak tongue. Mm -hmm. I certainly feel more secure knowing that I know a few mushrooms if everything goes peak tongue. Everyone come round my house. I'm making a stew. <laughs> we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but we need to find a connection again uh, to our natural surroundings mm. in order to benefit from it. And we don't benefit from it enough because we're disconnected. Does that make, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, really does, really does. And I think you touched on something that is obviously always worth reminding of people <laughs> of grounding and being present in nature. That it's mm -hmm. something that I discovered quite early on in my intentional exploration of certain entheogenic compounds is that being near a straight line can be very intimidating because nature doesn't use a ruler. You go into the woods and it is very rare to find a perfectly straight line. You will not find 90 degree bend. You will not find the precision geometry of mankind's engineering. And I find that you step into that wilderness, into that randomized pattern, into that you can understand certain orders of like the phylotaxis, like the, the arrangement of the leaf patterns and, and the way that certain things form. But ultimately it's the, I don't know, again, that childlike state that it evokes. As you say, there is the, the, the terpenes and the, the chemical response to it. But I also think there's this interactive part of us that again, is that little kid that's strapped back there behind all your responsibilities and you need to pay rent and you need to impress your parents and have a, a good career and all the rest of it that it gets to just uh, stretch his legs and go, oh, look at that leaf. Go, go right up and touch the tree. And do you know, I really engage in that tactile, really infantile. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way, in that sensory connectivity. And that's what we often miss. We, we're allowed it in, in sexual experience to, to, to understand that intimate nature of touch and <clears throat> of smell and, and that, that receptive interface, but not in nature. It's almost got, it's separate. We're, we're not taught about it. As kids, maybe you'll get a little bit of bugs and you could capture a bug in a little tube. And again, it's it's almost as a, a dominion over it. You're seeing this thing in isolation. You've 
removed it. You're not understanding its place within nature. And I think that what you do in terms of teaching with foraging and the the path that you're on with that, I think will will help enlighten quite a lot of people. I think the people like yourself that have decided to really learn about mycology, because God damn it is difficult. The names of some of these things. I'm I'm quite articulate and use some big words, but that was so high pitched. I'm so sorry for my listeners at home. <laughs> I just heard the feedback in that on my earphone. Sorry. Sorry about that, Alex. Um, but yeah, I think that, again, whether it is through just going into nature, even just taking and rubbing your toes in the grass, whether it be in a public park in the middle of a city or in your back garden or whatever it is, that that connective experience, it's antidepressive, it's anxiolytic, it's anti-inflammatory, it, it helps balance and alleviate the system and just, just seem to move into harmony. And that slowing of that pace, I think, is always a... It's always a good thing. There was some research done on taking people into the forest and registering their heart rate and their BP. And within five minutes of, of those with serious stress-based conditions, they of being in the forest for five minutes, their BP went down, their blood pressure went down. Everything just gets better when you get into nature. Um, our olfactory centers are far more complex than we ever give them credit for what our senses and the smells that we pick up on have very interesting effects in our brains like simply the smell of conifer and pine because of the pinene and it also has things like lemonine and immersing that are found in you know in as we know in cannabis plants they're all shared throughout the plant kingdom they're not isolated to cannabis people they're in everything so we we need those smells to invigorate our autonomic nervous system and to wake it up and to tell it what to do where it knows far beyond what we know for ourselves by being in nature we've we're already done half of the hard work in calming ourselves down if we deal with stress the other part is dealing with the the nagging overactive mind and and i know you said earlier about therapy and that it's actually quite scary I think it is under the the, the, the standard medical sit, sim, like system. They don't, it doesn't doesn't seem to give much option for creativity. But I think there are some really good therapists out there who people can reach out to in order to get support. Um, and I'm not one of those therapists, by the way. I don't, <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a mental health practitioner, and I I don't claim to be. Uh, a lot of the work that I do is focused around, if I do anything, with helping calm pe people's stresses around getting them to think about the idea of meditation or um, being kinder to themselves and being more gentle. Um, and being in nature is my therapy. I, don't, I, I honestly feel like I, I went through, a, that's the, probably one of the reasons why I got into it so strongly, because I, I had a horrific period in my life at one point and I thought what do I really need I was like I just need to be outside I just need to be outside and I threw myself into 10 mile walks per day and that was my th that was my therapy and then and finding medicinal mushrooms was part of that process I I didn't find them they found me that's the way I see it um I would come across them and then I would go home and research them I'd be like God, that's just what I need. That's just, that's, that's so funny. 
oh my god i've been talking about having x y and z and i've just found out this mushroom does x y and z it was like a what moment um and that's that's when i i think i understood my purpose in all of this it was to go with the flow there was no purpose it's let nature tell me what i need to learn from this process and most of it was slow down take some time um, and there's no expectations. And that's what mushrooms are really good for. As we know, you don't have expectations of yourself after you've had a myth, <laughs> you've done a trip or stuff and you're much more gentle. Um, they are my best friend. I am truly obsessed about my practice. Um, and I'm very, very glad that they exist. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah, yeah. You're very fortunate to live in the age that we are, that we can reproduce them in artificial environments, because otherwise you'd be pretty bored. I was going to say you'd be bored the rest of the year. You wouldn't. You'd still be learning. You just wouldn't be able to go in and into in, nature and find them. Yes, part take removes the excitement of finding them yourself. If you're if you're having to get a cultivar, yeah. I'm, I mean, what do I say to that? Go go out, people. Go and have a look at what's in your environment and become curious and never stop at the point where you think I don't have enough knowledge for this because we all start from somewhere mm -hmm. and there's no, nothing stopping you from learning just one mushroom a day or learning one characteristic and becoming happy with the fact that you knew that and there's no rush to learn like people often think oh god I've got to know all of the Latin names of this mushroom in order to fit in with the club. It's not about that. It's, a, it's about being attracted to them and finding out which ones you're attracted to and letting them show you what you can get from their world. Not the other way around. They'll always surprise you. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I, um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll just sort of wrap up. I mean, I do hope that anyone that's, that's enjoyed this, got more of a, a deeper understanding of of sort of mycology i think it's it's good that we haven't really bombarded people with too much of the the mechanics and the mechanisms of it but i think we've we've, we've given it a really good uh introduction to a lot of people so i want to thank you for for taking the time to to doing so um and yeah kind of putting it with my sophomoric knowledge around this this base but i think i've learned quite a lot of things as well to be honest so thank you well, you're welcome, Simpa. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And I hope everyone enjoys the information that's in, in the session. I'm here to answer any questions. Excellent. Well, I'll include a, a link to your bio below. If you wouldn't mind, actually, if there's any sort of basic resources or educational sort of uh, resources, uh, I, I can include in the bio and the link below, because I imagine quite a lot of people will now be quite curious and wanting to learn a bit more, because one of the things that really surprised me when I first went looking for mushrooms they're everywhere. When you know what you're looking for at the right time of year, they are everywhere. And it's a wonderful, exciting, again, that childlike reconnection is, it's mysterious, it's wonderful, and it's it's definitely worth visiting, folks. Thanks, Simpa. Excellent. So there you go, folks. Uh, I said folk, I said folks all the goddamn time. Pokey, folky, folk, folk. Anyway, my fine people, 